welcome to Mars Messina Presents. I am Mars and today is Saturday, June 3rd, 2023. We have a couple birthday shout outs today. So wishing a very happy birthday to my baby niece, Scarlett. Happy birthday, Bubala. And to my best friend, my beautiful dog, Joey. Happy sweet 16, my baby. <sighs> anyway, for episode 111, we will talk about the infamous case of Leopold and Loeb, a murdering duo who were convinced that they had committed the so-called perfect crime, a crime that left Chicago shaken. Despite this awful violence, Clarence Darrow, the controversial attorney, was able to achieve the impossible and save the two from the death penalty. Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb were close friends who attended the University of Chicago together in the early 1920s. They both came from affluent families and they consider, considered themselves to be unusually and abnormally intelligent, which they may or may not have been. Their belief in their own abilities led them to feel that they were superior to everyone else and were uh, privileged to a different set of rules than that of common people. Although they both lived in the Kenwood neighborhood of Chicago, it appears that they did not meet until the summer of 1920. Leopold was six months older than Loeb. They also did not become close friends until the age of 15 when they were both attending the University of Chicago. Loeb graduated University High School in 1919 and then entered right next door the University of Chicago that same year and he was only 14 years old. Then the next year, 1920, at age 15, Leopold entered the University of Chicago. Before they became two of the most notorious murderers in the history of this nation, they were basically an odd couple. Loeb, yeah, Loeb, yeah. Loeb was charismatic and he was a lot of fun to be around very personable. His charisma made him very popular with girls, with classmates, and acquaintances of all ages. In contrast, Leopold was awkward, aloof, and arrogant. His physical appearance was ordinary at best, while Loeb was considered handsome. Leopold's face was distinct, a later medical report would describe it as asymmetrical with bulging eyes. As their friendship developed, they began participating in numerous crimes and various crimes. It was later discovered that Loeb, the handsome, charming one, had a fascination with crime and a long fascination with crime and fantasized about being the perfect criminal and what went through that kid's head 
is um, chilling. Um, I won't get into all the details in this show, but you might want to read up on it. Anyway, as an adolescent, Loeb would live out this fantasy by shadowing people on the street. That's how he started out. He was practicing for this. And he had Leopold come along with him on his criminal adventures because Loeb needed a participant, um, but at first he wanted a witness to make these crimes more enthralling to him. He also needed um, sometimes a getaway car, which Loeb could, or I'm sorry, um, Leopold, sorry, Leopold could provide a ride for Loeb. At some point, it is uh, rumored that Leopold only participated because he had become physically attracted to Richard Loeb. And it is further rumored that the friendship became physical. Loeb quickly yearned to commit not only just any crime, but he wanted to commit a murder that would be so calculated and so perfectly devised that no one could ever determine who had done it. So when Leopold was attempting to engage in a sexual relationship, Loeb, allegedly again, agreed on one condition, that Leopold would not only watch, but join him in committing various crimes, all of which Loeb was sure would never be traced back to them. And like I said, at first, most of these crimes that the pair committed were Things like property crimes, um, breaking car or building windows, setting things on fire or stealing. Loeb discovered that the ignition key to his mother's electric car would work on any other car of that same model. Using the key, he took several cars for joy rides and was nearly caught on a few occasions. The two young men succeeded in perpetrating many more crimes over the next few years, and these included arson, robbery, and vandalism. And then on the night of November 10th, 1923, the pair traveled to Ann Arbor, Michigan in Leopold's Willie's Night Sports Car, a trip of about 300 miles. Arriving at around 3 a.m., they went to um, Loeb's old fraternity house, the Zeta Beta Tau fraternity for Jewish students at the University of Michigan. The Michigan football team had just won a game and the frat had partied that night. But by the time Leopold and Loeb showed up, the students in the fraternity house were all asleep. Wearing masks, the two crept into the fraternity house. They stole $74, a bottle of liquor, in a portable Underwood typewriter. They had planned to burglarize another fraternity house, but conditions seemed to be too dangerous to do so. So, except for a few minutes of excitement, the burglary at Zeta Beta Tau was a disappointment to both of the young criminals. 
On the drive back to Chicago, they began to hatch the plan for the perfect crime that would provide a challenge to them. They conjured up a complicated plan that would be flawlessly executed. They would leave no clues for the police. They would leave no trace of their involvement. To carry out this perfect crime, they needed a victim. But who should they choose? Desiring to make the murder look like a kidnapping to bide some time, they figured that they had to choose a child of wealthy parents because the parents needed to be able to raise ransom money quickly. Girls were immediately disqualified because adults tended to pay more attention to girls' whereabouts. In deciding upon a boy victim, they surmised that it would be easier to lure a boy that they already knew. But this meant that they would have to, they would really have to successfully kill the victim in order to avoid identification. <clears throat> Leopold and Loeb bandied, uh, they bandied about a few different names and a few different possible murder scenarios for each idea they had. The different scenarios they conjured up were more disturbing than the next. Finally, they zeroed in on a cousin of Loeb's, a boy named Bobby Franks. I believe Bobby Franks was Richard Loeb's second cousin. On May 21st, 1924, Leopold and Loeb picked up the 14-year-old Franks in their car. Franks was happy to go along with the two young men. After a quick drive, Loeb stopped the car suddenly, gagged his cousin, and beat him over the head with a chisel. However, Bobby was not beaten fully unconscious and he was struggling. Loeb then grabbed the seriously wounded boy and pinned him to the back seat. He shoved some cloth deep into the boy's throat and covered his mouth with tape. Most accounts indicate Bobby Franks died soon after the attack, most likely from suffocation. However, at least one account provides evidence and arguments that Bobby Franks may have been alive for much longer than was originally reported. Anyway, he finally succumbs and as Franks lays dead in the vehicle, the murderers just casually drove on, even stopping for lunch, before reaching their destination somewhere um, in a remote uh, field with railroad tracks. They poured acid on Bobby Frank's face and also a surgery scar that he had to obscure, obscure his identity, <clears throat> and they shoved his stripped naked body into a drain pipe. When they had finished, Leopold asked Loeb to grab his coat. Loeb picked up Leopold's coat, and while he was carrying it, a pair of eyeglasses fell out of a pocket about 10 to 12 feet away from the culvert where the body was abandoned. Neither of those guys realized that the eyeglasses had fallen to the ground.
Now, later on, when Bobby failed to return home, um, which was around 6.30 p.m., his parents, Jacob and Flora Franks, began to worry. Bobby was the youngest in the family. He had an older sister and an older brother. The family tried to assure themselves that everything was all right. Jacob Franks, Bobby's dad, he ch actually checked the Loeb estate because Bobby often played tennis on their court with Richard Loeb. Phone calls were made to several of Bobby's friends, but none of them knew his whereabouts. Later in the evening, still with no sign of Bobby, Jacob contacted friend and prominent attorney Samuel Edelson. The two searched the Harvard school grounds with the search coming up fruitless. Meanwhile, Leopold and Loeb stopped at a drugstore around 9.30 p.m. and using a phone book, looked up the phone number for the Frank's home, also their street address. They wrote the street address on an envelope containing a pre-written ransom letter. They placed the ransom letter in a mailbox with enough postage to ensure delivery for the next morning. They drove to Loeb's home and burned Bobby Frank's clothing in the furnace. A blood-soaked robe used in the crime was too large and they were afraid it would smoke too much so they didn't attempt to burn the robe. Instead, they hid it in the backyard. Afterward, they called the victim's mother to say that they had kidnapped her son, anonymously, of course. Chicago police launched an intensive investigation. Rewards were offered for information while Loeb went about his daily routine quietly, Leopold spoke freely to police and reporters, offering theories to anyone who would listen. He even told one detective, if I were to murder anybody, it would be such a cocky little son of a bitch as Bobby Franks. Before the ransom letter arrived at the Franks' home, railroad workers had discovered the body of Bobby Franks, and police officials shifted their kidnapping investigation to a murder investigation. While examining the crime scene, police found the pair of glasses that had been dropped by Leopold, or actually Loeb dropped them, they were Leopold's but the cops discovered that too. They, they could totally quickly ascertain to whom they belonged. <clears throat> Investigators also determined that the typewriter used for the ransom note that later arrived at the Frank's home also belonged to Leopold. The two killers were taken into custody and I believe at first they pleaded not guilty, but then they changed their plea and confessed to the crime. And once they did that, they were expected by everybody to receive the death penalty. But renowned defense attorney Clarence Darrow took their case and brought the sentence down to life in prison using a plea of insanity. 
the Leopold and Loeb case is Clarence Darrow's second most famous case. Only the Scopes anti-evolution trial the following year exceeded the murder case in terms of public interest and lasting historical significance. Darrow saved two confessed thrill killers from execution in a case that generated worldwide interest. And this case was a nexus of fascination for numerous factors, including the wealthy background of the defendants, absence of any legit reason to commit murder, or any reason at all, really, arbitrary selection of the victim, and the cruel and callous method that they used to kill him. There were also allegations the two killers were homosexual, and many believed the victim had been sexually assaulted before and maybe after he was murdered. Anti-Semitism also permeated the atmosphere because both defendants and the victim were Jewish. The perpetrators continued to torture the victim's family with a ransom note after they knew the boy was already dead. And especially troubling was the killer's confession that the crime was perpetrated just for the thrill of it, just because. Just because I was born, I wanted a thrill. I wa so I went and viciously murdered my cousin. Yeah. Darrow, knowing that the case against his clients was overwhelming, shocked the court and the world again when his clients withdrew their not guilty pleas and pled guilty. The attorney realized that the only way to save his clients' lives was to rely on the mercy of the court. Darrow believed their only chance was to persuade the judge to sentence his clients to life in prison instead of death. They simply could not take a chance with a jury because the state's case against them was airtight. If Darrow's strategy failed, his clients would be executed. Under Illinois law, when a defendant pled guilty to a crime and the judge had discretion in sentencing, the judge was required to receive and review aggravating and mitigating circumstances. Darrow used this law to introduce extensive psychiatric evidence and testimony. Several accounts identify this as the first time such evidence was introduced into an American courtroom. The psychiatric testimony and cross-examination, wait, my phone just went off, sorry. Um, so again, um, psychiatric testimonies, cross-examination, um, this was followed by Darrow's closing plea for mercy. The state countered with a strong argument for the death penalty. And so at the end of the trial, the case ended with the judge's life or death decision. So here, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's, it's brilliant the way he worded everything. But this is what 
push the judge into giving the two murderers a life sentence rather than the death penalty. So I'm going to read an excerpt from Darrow's closing argument in this case. And I quote, there are causes for this terrible crime. There are causes, as I have said, for everything that happens in the world. War is part of it. Education is part of it. Birth is part of it. Money is a part of it. All these conspire to compass the destruction of these two poor boys. Has the court any right to consider anything but these two boys? The state says that your honor has a right to consider the welfare of the community as you have. If the welfare of the community would be benefited by taking these lives, well and good. I think it would work evil that no one could measure. Has your honor a right to consider the families of these two defendants? I have been sorry and am sorry for the bereavement of Mr. and Mrs. Franks for those broken ties that cannot be healed. All I can hope and wish is that some good may come from it all. But as compared with the families of Leopold and Loeb, the Franks are to be envied and everyone knows it. I would not tell this court that I do not hope that sometime when life and age have changed their bodies as they do and have changed their emotions as they do, that they may once more return to life. I would be the last person on earth to close the door of hope to any human being that lives, and least of all to my clients. But what do they have to look forward to? Nothing. And I think here of the stanza of Hausman. Now hollow fires burnt out to black and lights are fluttering low. Square your shoulders, lift your pack and leave your friends and go. Oh, never fear lads, not to be dread. Look not left nor right, and all the endless road you tread, there's nothing but the night. I care not, your honor, whether the march begins at the gallows or when the gates of Joliet close upon them. There is nothing but the night, and that is little for any human to expect. Close quote. That's just an excerpt of what he wrote. It's, whether you agree with him or not, it's extraordinary um, writing and the way he delivered it was impassioned. And the murderers were uh, spared. They got life in prison rather than the death penalty because of the work of their, their attorney. <clears throat> So I would urge you to read more about um, 
the Leopold and Loeb case, you know, to kind of get into the minds of these uh, two depraved people, but also Clarence Darrow's approach, which was revolutionary at the time. Anyway, their lives were spared. Loeb was, however, stabbed to death by a fellow inmate in 1936, and Leopold was eventually released in 1958, and he held a variety of jobs after he got, got out. But then he died of diabetes-related heart attack on August 29, 1971, at the age of 66. Now, having talked about the murderers, let's talk about the victim, Bobby Franks. So, Bobby was born on September 19, 1909, and was considered a bright, outgoing 14-year-old from a wealthy family who lived in the upscale Kenwood area of Chicago's South Side. The Franks' home was diagonally across the street from the home of Richard Loeb. Again, they were cousins. And these boys lived a few blocks away from the home of Nathan Leopold. Bobby attended the same Harvard school for boys that Leopold had. Bobby's father, Jacob Franks, earned considerable wealth in real estate and as president of a watch company. An early investment in a Chicago gas comp company made the family a fortune. Before that, Jacob made money as a pawnbroker, loaning funds to borrowers from all walks of life. He had even earned the nickname Honest Jake because of his fair dealings with those who borrowed money from him. A conservative estimate put his wealth at $4 million which was an enormous sum for that time period. Anyway, ironically, just a few days before he was murdered, Bobby had won a debate at school on the issue of capital punishment. And Bobby favored finding, and I quote from him, a link between criminality and mental illness and he believed that most criminals had some mental illness and he said it was wrong for the state again i quote bobby to take a man weak and mentally depraved and coldly deprive him of his life close quote and ironically this quote by bobby franks could have been a quote from clarence darrow himself It is now time for Bedtime Stories from the Acoustic Bookshelf. We're going to close out episode 111 with a poem called The Ideal by Charles Baudelaire. Baudelaire, sorry. It will not be these beauties of vignettes, poor products of a worthless century, feet in half boots, fingers in castanets who satisfy the yearning heart in me. That poet of chlorosis, Gavarni, can keep his twittering troop of sickly queens since these pale roses do not let me see my red ideal, the flower of my dreams. I need a heart abysmal in its depth, 
a soul confirmed in crime, Lady Macbeth, Aeschylus's dream, stormborn out of the south, or you, great knight of Michelangelo's, who calmly twist in an exotic pose those charms he fashioned for a titan's mouth. Until next week, arrivederci.